Hi, I'm Craig Scarborough. This is the Everything F1 podcast, driven by fans, for the fans. This is the Everything F1 podcast. Today, we're talking about all the things that happened over the weekend in Qatar. And we're doing that with a very special guest, Craig Scarborough Scarbs. So, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the Everything F1 podcast with me, James Tiller. Alongside me from the Everything F1 team today, we do have Coops. Hi Coops, how are you? I'm alright, how are you? Oh, I'm very good, thank you very much. Cold in my garage, but... We're doing fine. We're doing fine. We've also got along with us today, Sean. How you doing, Sean? I'm very well, thanks. How's things? Yes, very good. I am very good. Thanks for asking again. That's twice. Beautiful. Uh, but we've also got a special guest today. Uh, his name is Craig Scarborough, or Scarbs for short. And you've probably seen him doing lots of technical uh, articles for different places all over the internet. Uh, hi, uh, Craig. How are you? I'm very good. How are you all doing this evening? Yeah, really good. Thank you very much. Thanks for thanks for coming along to chat to us today. Oh, it's nice to be here. Well, for any of the... Well, I've, I've kind of mentioned briefly what you do, um, but for any of our... Anybody that's maybe on the internet that don't know who you are and what you do, could you kind of give us a brief outline of, of who, who you are and why we'd like to speak to you today? <laughs> um, I could I could answer at least half of that. Um, yeah, so... Um, now, everyone calls me Scarbs um, across social media. I'm known as Scarbs Tech as well, with a little uh, yellow face with the big glasses. Yeah. And for now, for 22 years, um, I've covered the technical side of Formula One in particular, but motorsport generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, just trying to explain and demystify all of the kind of the, the aero and oily stuff that's on a Formula One car to the average fan. Yes, and, and I do follow you, and, and actually our page follows you as well. And we, we, we certainly use uh, your, your information uh, as best we can to, to form our knowledge as well. So you are a very uh, interesting and knowledgeable person to speak to. So we'll, we'll unpack that, hopefully, uh, after we just chat about the, the F1 that we witnessed over the weekend. But before we go into that, we are Everything F1. You can find us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, you can also find us on our website, www.everythingf1.com. You are also listening to us on our podcast itself, so we'd love you to hit the subscribe button, and you will get all of our latest episodes directly into your earlobes as soon as they drop. Can I have a three-line review from everyone uh, about the Qatar Grand Prix? We'll go to you first, Coops. Three lines. Tyres raise their head again. Rogue Marshall irritates uh, Red Bull and Hamilton Masterclass at the front. Okay, same same prompt for you, Sean. Give us a three-line review of the of the weekend in Qatar. Uh, Lewis closes in further. Uh, excellent damage limitation for Max. And delightful to see Alonso back on the podium. Yay! Life in the old dog. Time. Yeah, yeah. Seven years. That's uh, it's good to uh-huh. see. Good to see him on there. It's really exciting. Uh, and same question then to uh, to Scarves. Can you give us a three line review of the Qatar Grand Prix? 
Okay, I would say um, surprising lack of pace from uh, the Red Bull cars. Um, everyone else listened to Pirelli's advice, and um, the Hamilton Mercedes package just wins out again. It does. Well, let, let's unpack some of that in our full uh, Grand Prix review then. So we can't go much further without obviously talking about the win from Lewis Hamilton. Uh, Scarves just touched on that then. It was, uh, you know, an absolute masterclass domination. Uh, are we going back to kind of 2019, 2018 levels of domination for the remaining two parts of the uh, or three parts of the year? Questionable, might be. They are putting that zingy engine uh, in the ne- in for the next race. Um, but it was a great race from Mercedes uh, and Lewis Hamilton, Scarbs. What, what can you say about the race? I mean, really, the right, it, there wasn't, despite um, the, the qualifying advantage that Hamilton ended up having, which, again, I think was, I thought, certainly by the end of Saturday, was just down to a bit of lack of performance mm-hmm. from um, the Red Bulls. Um, but the race actually didn't go the way I expected. I mean, I think we, we all knew that Max would jump up after his penalty yeah. uh, and very quickly settle into a second position. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he never really made those inroads to Hamilton like we were expecting. And uh, again, that was slightly surprising. Um, I mean, I think the gap kind of was never much less than six seconds, opened up to a, a, probably a, a genuine eight towards the end. Mm. And... Um, I think these past few races have very much kind of gone against uh, the run of form, against what you would have highlighted as a Red Bull or a Mercedes track. Mm. And it's now getting incredibly difficult to predict who's going to have what kind of a race uh, or race weekend, uh, indeed, um, just by trying, you know, looking at the, you know, the temperatures, the track layouts. Uh, the size of the straights and things. Um, it, it's starting to get very cloudy now, isn't it? really so i mean we had it was like this before and then kind of max pulled out in front for um, and kind of we got to mexico and we were thinking oh yeah it's 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 max's max is to lose now he's 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 quite far ahead and then all of a sudden you know we've we've had you know mercedes on top again for for the last two um and it looks yeah. like the next two are going to be quite strong too so uh yeah, it's gone cloudy again. I think we'd pretty much declared Max the winner, hadn't we, a couple of races ago in, on this podcast um, when we had our, our previous guests on. But, you know, it, it, such as 2021, it's it's just a season that you cannot call, which is great, really entertaining to watch. Mm. Coops, have you got anything to add about the uh, Hamilton domination this weekend? Well, there's not much else you can say. It was just what you said. It was domination. I mean, he was up the front throughout most of the weekend. Got the lead into the first corner and then kept it and that was him. Uh, <clears throat> I mean it was they had that much of a pace advantage that even if Max started alongside I don't think he was gonna stay in front at mm. all. Uh, even if he managed to get in front, I think that would the uh, Hamilton would have got through probably on DRS at the end of the you know, the end of that straight. So yeah, Hamilton's just shown why he's could be an eight time world champion. You know, I think a lot of people talk about how you know how easy he's had it over the last few years till this year, but when Hamilton's back's against the wall, he just shows why he is who he is and where he is in the sport. Yeah. From last the last race at Brazil and this one at this weekend, and uh, you know he's he's brought that team back yeah. very much as a favourite now. Would you go as far as to saying they're they're the favourites now? Would you? Yes. Is that, you're gonna put your. Yeah, because I mean it's just too difficult the, to call this season now. It is, but. There's a pace advantage all of a sudden from Mercedes. Now, if you're a Red Bull fanboy, you're saying they're doing some trickery with the rear wing. Uh, 
We'll let, we could speak. We could speak to, to somebody who might know about that, or might have an idea about that. <laughs> what, what do you think, Scarbs? Is is there a trick wing going on? Obviously, uh, Mercedes are vehemently deni- denying the fact that it might that it is a trick wing. But have, have you had a look at it? Um, I've, I've seen lots of the videos that have come out over the weekend from the uh, Brazilian weekend uh, and some previous races. Um, I, I think there's there's a lot going on in lots of areas with the Mercedes. It took, takes me back to about two or three years ago, I think 2018, when mm. they completely re-engineered the back of the car to manage their rear tyre temperature. I, I think Mercedes have done a lot of things. Uh, we know they've done some work with the engine, which wasn't installed this weekend, but it was obviously the fresh one in Brazil, as you say, it's going to come back. Yeah, I think there is a number of fingers pointing at the rear wing, um, at the rear suspension, and... I can't say categorically whether they're doing something with that or not. Um, everything that I'm being told from people around the, the sport and from what I've seen is mm. there is something that I believe there could be something going on. Let me put it only as strongly as that. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, there, there, are, there are tricks to be played there. But I, I think really what's happened, and particularly you know, as, as a kind of an engineering and a technical person, when people say you know, oh, Hamilton did great this weekend. It's, yeah, Mercedes have given Hamilton the car to allow him to really, you know, perform at his maximum. And, mm. you know, Hamilton performs at his maximum, whether he's going, you know, pulling the car into second place, third place, fourth place. And, you know, you know he's always been great at bouncing back from all of the issues, particularly as he had um, weekend before last. Yeah. But I think definitely Mercedes have pulled something out the bag with that entire package over the past few races going into these um, final two races now, which suddenly seems like it's not quite enough races as we were expecting. Um, (laughs) And, yeah, I mean, they really have turned the tables. You know, they've they've found pace in that car in ways that people think, you know, possibly wouldn't be possible because you can't upgrade certain parts and they haven't Mm. been bringing. But their understanding and engineering of the car really has taken a huge leap. They've clearly put a huge amount of effort from the, the race engineering side of the business, not necessarily the design side of the business, to do something with that car mm. uh, and understand how it works with the tyres, because it's working with the tyres in a way that it wasn't even just a few races ago. So they've unlocked something there. And uh, again, which is why it's clouding things around um, in, when we're trying to predict. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I agree that you know that, that Hamilton Mercedes package is is the one to beat to the final two races. And when you look at the maths, mm. I guess that could tip it in the favour of uh, Hamilton for the championship, despite how rosy it was looking for the Red Bull Verstappen fans just um, a few races ago. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it, it was looking pretty safe. Uh, but then, as yes. you say, we, we came into Brazil and it's, it doesn't look any, anything near safe now for, for Max. He's certainly going to have to work his socks off. But damage limitations, like you mentioned, Sean, Max did what he had to do uh, as as much as he could do uh, and brought that second place and a fastest lap point as well. Yeah, uh, Red Bull said kind of in the aftermath of the race that that was maybe as much as they were expect, expecting in this weekend, given how quick Mercedes and Hamilton in particular were um, I mm. think after being demoted to seventh I think even Mercedes might have been a bit shocked and a bit maybe pissed off at how quickly he closed that gap up because while we know that Mercedes is quick at least in Hamilton's hands mm. I think they were maybe a little bit surprised by how much quicker the Red Bull was than everyone else I mean even look at Perez how quickly he 
came through the field even quicker than Bottas did in the theoretically dominant Mercedes. Yeah. So I still think after that weekend, I know Hamilton's been on a bit of a charge the last two weeks. I still think it's advantage max. I still think Mercedes have a gaff in them for Hamilton. They've had several for Bottas. They have a gaff in them for, for Hamilton. Um, and I think like Christian Horner's comments, I know everyone was attacking him for all what he, the stupid comment he said, but he made a very good point. He's not the one having absolute tirades at the camera, at the camera for making up. Like, <laughs> it's it's total Wolf that's shown the almost weakness this season. Um, and as Horner said himself, it's because he has not faced a challenge in eight years. He hasn't. Not since he has taken over from Mercedes. His biggest challenge was from within his own team. And even that stressed him out enough to the point that he deliberately chose someone who wasn't going to give Hamilton that same sort of trouble ever again, didn't he? I think mm. there's... The... Well, that's an opinion. It's that's, an opinion. That's an opinion it's of an yours. Opinion. That's, not, that's, not a, that's not a confirmed... It's, er, it's an opinion <laughs> that could be backed up by the stats of the last five seasons. <laughs> but I, I, I still think that Mercedes have a gaff in them and... We, all, we always say that Lewis Hamilton always puts himself in the position to make his own look, and yes, he does. I do think mm. that had Alonso or Gasly, but Alonso in particular, kind of beat him into turn one, it would have been a very different picture this race because we've said it a lot of times, but like I know Hamilton's a better overtaker than Bottas, but they still struggle following other cars at Mercedes. I think had Alonso got the jump on him, it might have been a different story. Verstappen might have caught up with him before he passed. It, something's going to happen. I don't think Saudi Arabia is going to be as dominant as this was or last week was. I think also just Max just seems like th- there's no pressure on him at all whatsoever. All the pressure. He's playing it cool. I, I, I actually don't cool. even think he's playing. I think he just is as cool as a cucumber. He said that like... Um, what did he say? He said, I don't care if I win one or 50 titles. Like, I'll have completed Formula One if I win it once. And he's right. James Hunt and Jensen Button said the exact same thing. And Nico Rosberg, sure, he completed it and left on the high. So I don't think I don't think he's wired that way. Like I know what you're saying. He he's acting cool. I just think there's it, underneath him. There's going to be something boiling. There's got, there's got to be something boiling. You, you can't stay that cool 100. I of the think time. the boiling is the boil to kind of just beat Lewis Hamilton, not to be champion, not to mm. be multiple champion, not to just like show everyone how good he is. It's just to say, I beat Lewis Hamilton. In the same way, that was Nico Rosberg's motivation. It was, I beat Lewis Hamilton, the statistically greatest driver of all time. And I beat him. Do you know? Okay. So, yeah. Scarves. We'll, we'll, go, we'll, go, we'll go over to Scarves now about, about Max Verstappen. Obviously, he had a great weekend. Uh, we, we're talking to, If we were talking technical and talking wings, there was uh, speculation over the weekend about some kind of oscillating rear wing with the Red Bull. Uh, is that something you, you've had a look at at all or know anything about? Yeah, that would mean that was, um, it was in some respects with, with Red Bull pointing so many fingers at Mercedes uh, with their uh, rear wing and, and recent races, rear suspension, mm. uh, to suddenly have something quite overt happening with their rear wing was um, <laughs> at best a bit awkward. Yeah, um, diversion it, tactics. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they almost kind of put a mirror on themselves, didn't it? Uh, mm. Yeah, I mean, what we saw there. I mean, a lot of people have. You know, I've read so many fantastic conspiracy theories over the weekend as to what's going on there with you know they're flapping this rear wing. It's just one of those 
little things that comes up with the design of a racing car from time to time. Mm. Red Bull have, have, have made some kind of a change to the car, and it could be uh, in the, the construction of the rear wing, the weight of the rear wing, even to do with the suspension and the, the rear tyre pressures they're working. But something in the balance of the rear end of the car is upsetting the, the rear wing flap that opens under DRS. Mm. And the, the, the DRS mechanism... Uh, tries to hold the rear wing flap open against the, the, the DRS pod itself. So it's kind of resting at that right. you know, really important 85 millimeter position. And for some not, reason... Not 87. Da- no, or not, not 87. Or 85.02 or whatever it was, sorry. Yeah, 85.2 position. Um, yeah. Under a 10 newton meter load or whatever it was. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what what happened is is that you've got you know the downforce trying to push the, the wing down, the hydraulics trying to lift it up, and all these other uh, you know forces around the back of the car, and they just set up an imbalance. It's almost like lots of springs working against each other, and it flaps, and mm. it doesn't give. It's not something they've designed into the car. It's not something that gives you a performance advantage. It's not even necessarily something that would give you more than eighty five millimeters of um, slot gap at the rear of the car. It's just something bouncing around when it really shouldn't do so um i think that's um a bit of a blind alley or a bit of a red herring in terms of um yeah the conspiracy theorists um running around (laughs) between the teams (laughs) pointing fingers quite so much but i think in a kind of perverse way that it actually really affected verstappen in the race because they didn't want to go into qualifying with this problem because one, you know, it doesn't give you performance, and two, it potentially invites uh, unreliability into the rear wing structure, and you certainly don't want that um, mm. around any circuit, certainly not one with a massive long straight like uh, Qatar had. So he had to change to a different rear wing specification, which was a much higher downforce, much higher drag um, rear wing, which didn't really suit the LaSalle uh, uh, layout. It, right. you know, it really hindered him on the straights. So I think in some respects, um, if you're a Max fan and you're trying to find positives from, you know, that, that, that gap that was constantly there between him and Hamilton is that he was being held back both through qualifying and through the race by a rear wing that was less than ideal for what they really wanted. So potentially with the ideal wing, he may have been a bit more competitive and qualifying may have been able to bring the battle a bit more to Lewis you know of course we, we, we'll never know now and mm-hmm. Rebel are about to, uh, to tell us either but um, <laughs> you know it, it was it was something that did lead to um, you know some impact in their performance for the weekend so you know there is that to to take into account and on your points on Max yeah I mean I think he is you know um, matured incredibly in these last few years I know sometimes he's driving under pressure uh, may belie some of his lack of experience, but um, I think he is coping with it, you know, uh, overtly very well. And if you see the kind of person that he is, and the sort of person that his dad's brought him up to be, uh, mm. is to really kind of take his his emotions out of the championship and the event. And I think that's working really well for him. And I, the other thing, uh, going back to your, your your comments about you know Toto. Uh, and um, Christian Horner over these well, over the entire year, to be honest, is it the, <laughs> the, the ar- <laughs> Yes, but the arguments have been with the team principals. Normally, in a championship battle, it's between the two drivers, and I think Lewis has kind of reached that again stage in his life, stage in his maturity, where he doesn't need to hate the person he's racing against, and Max, you know, appears not to give a damn anyway. 
um, that it's not the drivers that are each other's throats. The drivers are just going out there, doing their best and going, today, that was my best. Whether it's first <laughs> or second, you know, it's what the, you know, your power unit, your chassis, the tyres, the track, the weather, all of those combinations mean whether you win or lose. And um, in some respects, at the end of this year, it's sad that someone will have to lose and will be kind of, you know, hated down by half of the F1 fan base going, <laughs> ah, loser. Uh, and, and the person that wins the championship will be, you know, a godlike deity that um, is just fantastic, either because it's their uh, what eighth championship or it's because they have their first championship. Um, it's a shame that we can't maybe have a draw at the end of the day. Um, because, I mean, I think we all know what F1's social media is going to be like. It's going to be very polarised. Oh, um, it's going to be toxic. Toxic, and it's going to go on. I mean, it, you, know, you, you mentioned Rosberg at all on social media these days, and suddenly either Rosberg or Hamilton fans are going to come out of the woodwork and still argue about that. Oh, but he had one more breakdown, or he had you know, <laughs> that someone did that, or that did that. Um, yeah, I think this one, this one could roll on for quite some time. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to... People who like to just sit back and watch that sort of thing are going to have a great time. <laughs> well, I, like, I mean, that, that's the lucky position I'm in. I, I, I honestly don't have favourite teams, favourite drivers. There's maybe some that I respect more than others. But uh, when you see it all go off, it's quite fun. I mean, I try not to trigger it too much nowadays. I did, I, in, in years gone by, <laughs> it was always fun. It was always fun to kind of trigger this stuff up. But um, now I'm just happy just to kind of watch it and or... Mm choose to ignore it more in the case it has been for the past few weeks <laughs> well yeah like you say that's going to roll on for quite a while now anyway mm. um well, well let's talk about fernando alonso the old dog himself one of the veterans of the uh the grid uh he managed to get onto onto the podium and get a third place trophy after seven years of not being on the uh, podium what, what were your thoughts on alonso I mean, I was shocked by that statistic that he hadn't been on the podium for, is it seven years? Seven um, years. Alonso's time in Formula One is almost equally matched mine. When I first started going to test at Silverstone on a freezing cold January morning. Nice. Back in, was it year 2000? <laughs> you know, right. I'd be sat there in, in, walking up the pit lane and Alonso would be in his Renault Michelin overall shiver, shivering and we would kind of pass the time of day. Um, and... Uh, you know, that's not me trying to make out that me and Alonso are sort of buddy buddies, but that's where he, where we both were back in those days. He's kind of moved on quite considerably. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, maybe mine has as well, but maybe I don't have quite the, uh, the championships and the, uh, the bank balance to, uh, to match his. But, nice um, though, wouldn't it? it would, I mean, I'm, sure, I'm sure I could find a, uh, some use for some of his money if it came to I'd probably be wasted buying more spare parts of racing cars, but um, <laughs> no, I mean it was a, it was a fantastic performance. I mean I think we've we've all seen that Alonso has come back a lot hungrier this year than perhaps some of his time, uh, you know, at the final years at McLaren. Um, mm. You know, maybe made made us think that maybe that was him finished for good, and he didn't have that motivation anymore. But he certainly has come back this year and thoroughly deserved you know, a great result. And um, you know, there, there's luck in it, but equally, he didn't throw it off the, the circuit at the first lap, which yeah, I was kind of expecting <laughs> that he was going to make some kind of ridiculous lunge for mm. uh, a gl glory at the end of turn one. He alluded but, to that in, in, in these uh, interviews. He's like, oh, I'm sure I could have got him at turn one. And you're like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, I don't think he was <laughs> what in any position to do that without it being an absolute suicidal move. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, again, it goes back to, I think lots of people may be positive or negative towards Fernando, but I think by and large, you know, I think everyone always wants some of these older underdogs to kind of come back you know like people that root, have rooted for mclaren over the past few years people that are mm. rooting for williams these past few years and you know it's like and you know kimmy is another classic example it's it's great when these people do have a really good day and you can see you know the performance that we all you know, kind of used to love these people for back in the day mm. and uh, you know there still is a, a huge amount of talent um with an Alonso. So, you know, that, that was good. And for the Alpine team, who, again, weren't a team that I had picked out to be particularly successful at La Salle because it's a circuit that demands lots of efficiency in terms of the aerodynamics. That really has been Alpine's weakest point now for um, quite a few years, sadly. Yeah. Yeah, as I say, just, but just great to see. Nice surprise. And it's always nice to see someone different on the podium as well uh, in the year, you yeah. know. It's just, just good to see that somebody else up there. Um, okay, we'll go over to Coops and we'll talk about the the second drivers of of the two big teams, Bottas and Perez. Uh, now, Bottas obviously got that three grade uh, three place grid penalty um, for over not overtaking, but um, disrespecting the, the the waved yellows in qualifying. Um, and Perez w- w- also kind of qualified around that area anyway. But Perez seemed to move forward, whereas Bottas kind of stagnated around that kind of similar place and then I obviously had his wheel explosion as well for for the deflation of the tyre Yes, uh, Bottas did what he did got three places because he didn't slow down enough for the it was a single waved yellow flag uh, Verstappen hmm. got the five place because it was double waved yellows uh, so that's where the difference was Question, A questionable but, double waved yellows as well Well not a straight, were, not a straight, not a straight kind of definite kind of double waved yellows, but a, a questionable it was, one. It was messy because it was yellow, then green, then yellow, and then it was the computer system or the panels weren't on. It wasn't on the dash, but the the marshal seen the slow the stopped car, so he waved the double waved yellow. So he done the job as per as Michael Massey said, as what the sporting code says. Mm. But it was handled a bit. Messy in the first place. It was just a bit clunky. Mm. I think they were trying to keep it as green to let everybody do their thing. And uh, but anyway, I mean, regardless of whether as Horner got in the slap and the rest were saying it was a rogue marshal, regardless of whether it was a rogue marshal, he put the yellow flag out. So you've got to respect it mm. as the yellow flag, regardless of whether it should have been there or not. And he didn't. Yeah. He didn't even increase his time. Well, I know we're going back on Max Verstappen after I just asked you a Bottas question, but he didn't even better his time either. Anyway, did he? He was uh... no. But the thing is, yeah, the flags are there for safety, and if you disrespect them, they're going to get a penalty. It's mm. the same as the technical issue with uh, Hamilton. Regardless of whether it was, you know, even the FIA kind of like at uh, with Brazil, sorry, with the rear wing. You're like, we know it's marginal, but it's a technical regulation you broke, and they're there for a reason. You know, they're kind of black and white in that sense. But going back over to Bottas, I mean, he did his usual, got himself in a reasonable position, fluffed the start, ended up down the order, and then slowly got himself back into it. And then, unfortunately, Mercedes either ignored Pirelli's advice, didn't get the memo, or whatever it was, they decided, they decided to push the tyres four laps over the recommended kind of limit and lo and behold the tyre fails 
and he and he was set for third. I mean, he was at the pace. He was cutting through the order. The the one lap strategy, if the tyre had stayed on, he would have probably got third place. Uh, but it's kind of a wee bit inexcusable for Mercedes to push it four laps over the maximum on a on a circuit that is so heavy on the tires. All all of the all of the punctures. Uh, every driver said that they felt fine, and it was kind of an all of a sudden puncture. Um, which I, I obviously I I tend to think it's obviously because of the the, the curbs that that's the that, that happened. What what what's your thought on that uh, scarbs? Um, obviously it's not good to see those kind of punctures, but drivers were saying that the the tires were actually fine right up until they until they went. Uh yeah, but yeah, t- tires do when you have a blowout. I mean, how many of us have had one on the motorway? Um, Fortunately um, not. I'm touching wood now. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm not, I've, I've had blowouts, but luckily not on the motorway. And you know, <sighs> more more often than not, you don't get any warning, uh, and mm. particularly with race tires and such a long straight, such hard curbs. Um, really, you know, um, I, I don't want to kind of tr- maybe try and be too wise after the facts, but yes, Pirelli did um, give the teams a warning of the, the maximum distance, and so often we see the teams try and eke out a one stop by really stretching the tires and so often we see you know this is the result and you know at what point do the teams have to stop you know Mm. um if they were stretching any other aspects of the car out beyond its safe life then there would be complaints why can they do that with tires um and it's nothing that ever seems to have been properly addressed but you know, why Mercedes chose that, I mean, and I think that was partly down to, well, two reasons, which could be slightly interlinked. You know, as you said, Bottas had a, a poor start. His revs were too low against the target of what he needed to be on mm. the, off the line and got a slow start. And he also had an engine problem throughout the race. And I think that was probably what erred Mercedes into a kind of a let's plug on on a slower one stop um, and finish the race that way than try and... Um, give you fresher tyres, which may stress the engine more, and we, you know, that would potentially give us a DNF um, from the engine, which is what they probably at that time was their bigger concern. Mm. Um, and it, you know, it didn't pay off. Uh, the tyre went. Um, I don't know why Williams stretched Latifi out there, but um, you know, I mean, I think the writing was on the wall all weekend in terms of the danger of the curbs and tyre longevity. So you know, it's. Um, it's it, it's something that maybe at some point needs to be addressed by Formula One and Pirelli in terms of, you know, how long do we let these people stretch uh, a tyre out for? Um, mm. And yeah, is there really nothing that we can do about it? Because... Can they set can they set a maximum? Like, oh, we're, okay, we're telling you that the, 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 these tyres will only last 30, so we'll let you do 32 and then you actually absolutely have to change it. I don't believe there is anything that forces a team to, to do that. I don't no. think there's anything in the rules. There's nothing in Pirelli's deal, or I think we would have seen it before, and we've heard it quite a few times in, the, I think, some of the Silverstone races where the tyres have kind of <laughs> popped as well. Yeah, you know, it just seems a bit strange that teams could overgo uh, Pirelli's well-given advice. You know, Pirelli, you know, don't get me wrong, Pirelli have got lots of things wrong in the past as well, but I think certainly in terms of tyre life, when they were saying this was clearly a two-stopper race, it was faster to be two stopped than why teams suddenly so many of them were trying to do one stoppers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I agree. Uh, can you comment on Bottas then in terms of his 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 race and kind of where you think do you think he he, he would have been well he he would have been third if he had he pitted earlier and and whatnot? Do you think or do you think maybe Perez would have 
uh, come back on the charge. Well, I mean, I think with his engine problem, I think he may have struggled to to pressure Perez, to be honest, Mm -hmm. um, without, you know, um, uh, burning his engine up. So it's it's really hard to say. The fact that Mercedes withdrew that engine, uh, or drew the car, sorry, um, before the end of the race kind of told you um, pretty much uh, where they were probably going to end up anyway. So yeah. I think without the safety car, it probably would be more likely that Perez would have got that third place. I'm not so sure that Bottas would have. Fair enough. Okay, well... Well, I don't want to talk about every single driver on the grid because we'll be here all night. Um, but what I want you to do now is is each pick maybe a driver that impressed you uh, and a driver that didn't impress you throughout the whole race weekend um, that we haven't spoken about. So I'll go to Sean first because we haven't heard your voice for a little bit. Sean, uh, a, a driver who impressed, a driver who maybe didn't perform to where you would have preferred them to be or expected them to be. Uh, I'm going to do both in the one driver, actually. Uh, unfortunately, Pierre Gasly. Um, had another absolutely spectacular qualifying. He's arguably the he, he. I think he's taken the title of Mister Saturday off George Russell this season. Um, <laughs> but by God, and I don't think it was one hundred percent his fault. But uh, that was an awful race for for him for Afatari in general. I mean, mm. to get I believe they got both cars into into Q three. Did they not? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Yuki, Yuki qualified eighth, and obviously Pierre up in that incredible fourth. Um, but both of them fell away, and unfortunately, this is kind of comes back to what I was saying for the last couple of podcasts, actually, that you know that their results this season has been partially that Pierre has been wildly, in fact, entirely because Pierre has been wildly overperforming. It's not really that Yuki has been underperforming, and I thought. Yuki's been getting a lot of completely unfair stick the past couple of weeks, especially from Christian Horner, of all people. <laughs> For Mexico, when it was, you know, as, as Coop said in the last podcast, you know, Perez just decided to follow him for a shortcut. It didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> but I, th- I think this race finally showed that the Alpha Tauri is just not a great car, unfortunately, especially not on a circuit like this. Um, for mm. Pierre to finish only, what, a place of the two places above Yuki... You know, I thought that was okay. Like from Yuki's point of view, he finished much closer to Pierre than usual. Um, but yeah. this is just an awful, awful race for for Gasly. And it, you know, it, I believe he two stopped. It wasn't even that they had a, a blowout or anything like that. It's just they had no pace. He had a decent start and then just went backwards again and again and again, completely over and over again. And partially that might have been starting on the softs. But then you look at Lando and, and Fernando Alonso and how well, how well they went on the softs. So. I don't even really give that to him as an excuse. They just they just had no pace, which was really, really disappointing. And what's even worse for them is that Alpine had, and I'm sure someone else talked about Alpine, but Alpine had such a good weekend that that's fifth place pretty much sewn up for them, barring some bizarre turn of events. I can't see AlphaTauri overturning that deficit. It's It was such a huge point haul for, for Alpine by the standards of a midfield table. Uh, midfield team mm. that's you know I, I think I think that's uh, that's that's one multi-team fight that that I think I think we can comfortably shut the door on that one after that which is a big disappointment for Alpha Terry because Pierre especially is an excellent season okay well same question to you then Scarbs uh, who's impressed you uh, and who maybe hasn't performed where you would have liked to have seen them well I think it was probably uh, outside of those, those top few finishes, it was hard to find someone that maybe had shone. I think um, notable mention maybe would be for uh, Lance Stroll, who uh, came in sixth. Yeah. And 
he's one of these drivers. People love to hate him, don't they? <laughs> and he certainly appears to be inconsistent. I know he hasn't had the greatest of cars during his time so far, but he is able to turn out a performance every now and then that really makes you think, well, do you know what? Maybe he's not an incredible driver that's going to go to the very top, but he's certainly not a bad driver, and he's not this daddy's boy pay driver that perhaps people love to portray him as and it's quite mm. easy to kind of you know to sort of pile on in him in in that sense but he he, he does put results in and uh, yes yeah, so i think he probably gets my notable mention uh in terms of disappointment and it's not really with the driver it's in terms of the uh, the race day performance was uh ricardo in the mclaren oh, and yeah. which is quite unusual and mm. uh, Oddly, McLaren, I mean, I say oddly, McLaren aren't, aren't quite the team they used to be where everything was hidden in Ron speak. Um, it was surprisingly <laughs> open, and they said that, you know, from the start of the race, they were behind in their fuel delta, and Daniel had to slow down to save fuel. Mm. And by the time they realized this was just some rogue readings, and he had you know, more than enough fuel to get him through to the end of the race, it was kind of too late then. And I think uh, that was just kind of disappointing because. McLaren have kind of slipped back from Ferrari over this kind of last half of the season. Mm. Uh, certainly since their kind of their their, their big moments in um, you know, but obviously in particularly in Monza. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know, McLaren have kind of run out a bit of steam, and to have a a weekend where you know the potential of a great race result was taken away from them, mm. um, uh, just is you know kind of disappointing all round, really. It was, it was, uh, well, especially as uh, if you if you've ever listened to us, uh, we are not so secret McLaren fans here on the uh, Everything F One podcast, and uh, it's it's been such a shame because we started the season so well, <laughs> uh, and it's just kind of dropped off. Uh, but praise goes to Ferrari over over kind of the sadness for McLaren, really. I guess. Can I can I jump in and actually scribe? I'd love to get your your thoughts on this because I uh, I can't remember who I was reading, but I read a, an article there uh, about a week ago. That uh, not to kind of excuse McLaren's lack of form recently, but that maybe third place this year is more important to Ferrari than necessarily is to McLaren. Obviously, McLaren finished third last year, and because of the budget cap, are probably still rolling some of that money over to next year. Ferrari obviously had a woeful year last year, and even with all of their historical income, would have taken a huge hit. So. Do you think even from a financial point of view, third place probably means more to Ferrari this year than McLaren? And maybe McLaren have already started to, to, to shift focus to next year, even before Ferrari have to fully commit to next year? Kind of hard to answer that. <laughs> um, there's, two, there's, there's, two, there's two parts of the question, isn't there? First of all, how important is third position? Mm. And it, this year, uh, and it's certainly in, in the coming years, it's going to be a bit of a double-edged sword because... You know, third is great, and you may more get a bit more prize money. And again, it's that's not my area of expertise or understanding quite the financial benefits. But finishing third means in the next season you get less wind tunnel development time, CFD yeah. time, than the team that are in fourth. Mm -hmm. And I don't know at their level how significant an advantage that might be or might not be. So yeah, it, I, it could be you know. Yeah, okay, we're happy we're going to finish fourth. Uh, we can live with that. As you say, we got third last year. Mm -hmm. This year, we had a noble fight. We backed off early, and we're going to get more wind tunnel time to develop the 2023 car. So that's all good. Um, I don't know which team backed off first in terms of development, because I think both 
In fact, most of the teams, by and large, I think are all backed off pretty much around the same time, to be honest with you, um, which was not too long after the season started in terms of the design office. Um, obviously, parts take a while to come through um, mm. the design office through manufacturing to get onto the car. Uh, and some of them obviously are saved up for certain races as well. Um, Ferrari obviously had that big um, energy recovery system upgrade which came quite late in the year. And that is certainly is one of the big things that's kind of given them that, um, I keep using the word zap, and it, that's not a pun on the energy recovery electrical uh, <laughs> system, but it, it's, it's, it's literally, it gives them more punch out of corners because yeah. they're running more voltage through, the, through the, uh, the motor and the battery now, which has lots of benefits in lots of ways that we can't even start to explain in a, in a podcast in, in less than an hour. We definitely have to, yeah. have to do one committed just to that because it sounds fascinating. Yeah, a, de- a dedicated one of explaining why 400 volts is not as good as 800 volts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and if, you can, if you can sell sponsorship for that one, then maybe you should go work for a team. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so I think Ferrari have come on strong not because of their general development rate, but because of their power unit development rate. And that rolls into next year for all of the teams. Um, so it's, it's a, a slightly different um, uh, use of money, resources, uh, compared with work that you do on the chassis. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of a shame that we don't have maybe a, a slightly more edgy battle going into the final two races between these two teams. I mean, it's still, you know, one reliability issue or one bad weekend or one great weekend away from being completely turned on its head. But if you look at the normal run of form, it, it's, it would be nice if we could maybe keep that going for another race. Um, just to have another question other than who comes first and second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to, to, to see actually that um, McLaren have only scored the four, going back to kind of McLaren uh, in terms of, the, the points they scored over the, the triple header, they've only actually scored four points uh, to Ferrari's forty-seven points. So that's a quite a big swing wow. for the, you know across the triple header that we've just witnessed. And so it, it could have been so much better than the, the tire blowout. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Which, which again begs the questions: Why did the teams think they knew better than Pirelli? Okay, Coops. I know Scarbs and, and and Sean have probably taken your uh, selections because they they chose decent ones to talk about. But have you got a, a winner and a loser to talk about? I hate saying loser because it's not a nice term, but a positive a positive spin on the weekend and, and somebody who didn't perform to uh, what you expected them to. Well, well, Scarbs actually took both of the ones I was going to talk about. So well done on that one, Scarbs. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and Sean took my ones as well. So, <laughs> well, welcome, welcome to the podcast, Scarbs. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a very strange kind of Grand Prix. Like there wasn't a lot happening. So you know, outside of what everyone's really said, you know, there's not really much to add in. I mean, I will touch on Mazepin. I mean, it looked really terrible in qualifying. He was two plus seconds behind in in last. But well, I think what was found out was there was a crack in the chassis after he ran over those uh, horrible curbs that are on that track. Uh, which kind of caught a lot of people out, so it wasn't quite as bad as it looked. Uh, but it's maz- um, Mazepin, so <laughs> were you expecting much more? Well, like I said in the last, you know, uh, we had uh, Mark Gallagher on, and I kind of said at the last podcast that, you know, he was he's not that far behind in previous kind of formulae and stuff like that, so that there's more to it. But anyway, 
I don't really want to talk about Mazepin. That's my thing. But yeah, I mean Mick Schumacher getting sixteenth. That's all right. I mean, yeah, Vettel got in the top ten. It was a very good rate. It was a very good weekend for Aston Martin. They quietly got on the on the day, uh, on on with the job. Yeah, mm. uh, you know, and unfortunately for us as McLaren fans, the Ferraris just wiped the floor with uh, with the uh, McLaren this weekend. Uh, yeah, it's just yeah, uh, you've all covered everything. So thanks Fair enough. a lot, a lot of you. Cheers. <laughs> Well, that's fine. Uh, it, it it was it was an entertaining race. It wasn't the most en- entertaining race that we've witnessed all year because uh, well, we, we've had such a great year, obviously, of F one. Uh, it, it certainly won't go down in 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 everyone's in history as 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 the most exciting, but certainly gave us a very close championship uh, for the last two races, which will you know hopefully be spoken about for quite a while. Um, that's that's our Qatar review. Hopefully, that's. Uh, touched on everything that all of our listeners wanted to, to hear us talk about anyway um, and if not let us know in any kind of comment sections and hopefully we can we can touch on that in the next week's uh, episode okay well we've got our guest here Scarbs uh, so we may as well chat about you and your career um, within F1 uh, it, first first and foremost I I only learned this today when I was kind of doing a bit of research into you, but you, you actually hold a, a full-time job as well as doing all this journalism and, and, and illustration work, uh, technical um, drawings work. Is that is that correct? Oh, well, I, I, I used to. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, my, um, <laughs> my, my career um, somehow kind of diverged from engineering um, as, a, as a young man into IT, which was kind of the, the burgeoning... Um, industry when i was mm-hmm. uh, far younger um so yeah i used to be i used to be an it manager for retailers cinema chains um pizza chains that um reside in huts um and, <laughs> yeah I, I, I won't i can't i won't do any product placement for anybody really. um, sorry that was really not clear at all who you were talking no, about no. Yeah, we'll, 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 i'll explain i'll explain that one offline to you um, but yeah no, i i i i had a a, a a proper nine to five job and um it was you know i mean my it career kind of spans pre-internet post-internet uh, years right. and um, I was certainly more productive as an IT professional pre-internet than I was post-internet because I wow. most spent most of my working hours looking at Formula One stuff, um, <laughs> and um, that um, luckily um, there's a, there's a Dilbert cartoon that, that kind of sums up my my the latter half of my IT career that said. How did people look busy before there were computers? Um, <laughs> because you know, me working on Formula One, or me working on you know network diagrams and business plans and pr- budgets and what have you, looks exactly the same through an office window. Mm. Um, I'm just you know scowling at a computer. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it reached a kind of a crescendo in um, 2013, and uh, I had some 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 heart problems. And when I went back to work, I decided, no, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. And uh, okay. I, was, I was, in some respects, I was persuaded out of my position as well by some employers. Um, but it came mm-hmm. to the stage where I had enough Formula One work to also um, to, to, just to do this as a full time job. And um, it was a bit of a gamble, as anyone who's ever gone self-employed uh, would mm-hmm. understand. 
but I'd spent 14 years doing it as a part-time job, um, literally, you know, at work, at lunchtimes, in the evenings, through the early hours of the morning, do drawings. And mm. it just it just made sense for lots and lots of reasons, just to back off and just make it my living. And I've been really lucky in that it has kind of, it has, at the end of the day, paid the bills. Uh, some some months we didn't quite get there, but certainly things are a lot more comfortable nowadays. Oh, and, and yeah, so, so since 2014, I have not had a proper job because I don't consider this as a job or a proper job or anything of the sort. This is being paid to do your hobby. And it's the greatest, the greatest luxury anyone can have in the entire world. It's fantastic. So has it always been F1 for you so since you were a kid? Is, is, is has F1 been kind of the main kind of target or dream? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think when I was much, much younger, it was aeroplanes and sci-fi. Mm. I grew up. I mean, I think the thing that really got me into engineering, which I think is my, my real interest, uh, was like things like Thunderbirds. Uh, and seeing all the different, everything was mechanical, everything had a machine mm. to do a job, and I would kind of watch that, and it was like, this is amazing. And then I got into airplanes, and then I started making model airplanes, and then when I realised that model airplanes weren't complicated enough, I started to make model race cars, which right. were the sort of the Tamiya models, which you'd build all of the DFE engine and all of the Hewland gearbox, and then wow. you'd look at the car and you think, well, why is the bodywork shaped like that? Why is when I take the side paddles off it looks like a wing it's like oh that's a wing car i can start to understand that and how does a turbo and by getting into that i think the complexity of race cars at the time and this was as we came into the turbo era the ground effect era active era um just kind of piqued my interest and i i got far far more involved in the interest in formula one and race cars than than airplanes and it's just kind of blossomed from there. And, you know, I, I take an interest in other race categories as well. But um, in an odd kind of way, Formula One is both technically the most interesting, but also the one where you can actually make some money by reporting on it. You know, um, yeah. I, could eat, I would love to cover MotoGP for a living, but, you know, it's that that isn't going to pay the bills. Um, mm. And neither would be Formula E or Extreme E or any other categories so um formula one has kind of kept my attention but um for, for reasons beyond just it being the most technical so when you were doing the two things together the, the old the old job and, and then you first kind of how, how did you get into formula one and and and, and how, was it was it just so knackering doing all two jobs at the same time or, or, or because it was your hobby and you you loved it you didn't mind or whatever um i mean there, there, there's a price to pay isn't there <laughs> Yeah. You, you're trying to you know, burn the candle at both ends. I mean, I, I got into it, um, again, initially through the internet. I'd always, you know, um, uh, cultivated a big interest and bought as many books on Formula One that I, I could. You know, I did mechanical engineering um, as a student as well um, and bought all of the magazines and all of that stuff. You know, we'd see Giorgio Piotr in the back of um, initially Grand Prix magazine, then it became... Uh, there was Autosport would, would publish his work and other other people, what have you. So that was kind of was where I would get my interest from. And when the internet came along and what was originally bulletin boards that evolved into forums, mm. people would ask questions. And I thought, well, I know the answer to that. I'll, I'll explain it. And it's like, hold on, I'll draw it for you. Wow. Um, which obviously in the old days was incredibly difficult because – you know, you had to go and find a scanner and then someone to host a picture on an FTP site and, you know, suddenly 
suddenly yeah. my job my job in IT made sense. It's like <laughs> this is why I've been working in IT so I can produce Formula One content. Mm. Um and that moved into uh, a guy, uh, Scott Grewer in Australia, who did one of the first kind of big Formula One tech bulletin boards, which was, um, was techf1.com, which um, yeah. some, some remnants of that still exist. And in the year 2000, I covered every race for him from home um, with pictures I could get from wherever I could find them and explain the developments of the cars race by race. And, you know, why things were shaped like that, why cars broke down and why cars may have been faster. And for the 22 years since then, uh, I've done that. And um, as you say, um, that was done with any spare moment of time at work. Um, I, um, uh, if, I don't think my bosses are listening, but um, <laughs> um, I, I could spin you a yarn how I would actually be at Formula One testing when I should have been at work. Um, or a, a Microsoft conference and people would phone me and I'm trying to hide the sound of the V10s going by. And it's like, yeah, there's some kind of weird you know, experience going on in the auditorium. Don't worry about the sound of the wailing engines. Um, and yeah, you know, it, my spare time was eaten up. You know, I have a, a wife and a family. Mm. And um, when it got to the stage where it was, you know, now not just a hobby, but actually quite a, some, some, a quite a serious commitment when I was um, doing the drawings for Autosport magazine or uh, Auto Sprint in Italy. Um, you know, Grand Prix weekends, I would be drawing. I'd start drawing as the family went to bed and mm. depending on how many updates there were and how complicated they were, I could be sat there drawing when the, you know, it was getting daylight again. So you'd wow. kind of slip, slip back to bed for uh, an hour or two and then go to work. Um, yeah. you know, and, and I loved it, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, and I, I wouldn't want to do it again, but it, you know, that's <laughs> what, that's what established me in, in, in what I do now. And, um, as I say, I'm in a bit more of a relaxed and, um, um, a more comfortable position now, a more comfortable position now. Um, um, a privilege is the word I would use, which obviously is a, in some respects, a bit slightly dirty term now, but, um, you know, I think I'm very lucky in what I do and um and what i have done so yeah so it, it you know it's been great and it's it's really paid off coops do you want to want to float your question probably about the 2022 regulations what part of the regulations interest you most or do you think that formula one have kind of got this these regulations more spot on than other changes over the years? yeah i mean i think the regulations for, for 2022 are probably some of the best ones i've seen drafted in all the years I've been interested in Formula One, not just the past sort of sort of 20, 22 years when I've been deeply involved in it. I mean, I can remember the big regulation changes at the end of 1982 when they got rid of skirts and ground effects and went to a flat bottom for the first time. Mm. And, um, you know, kind of remember, I, that was probably the first set of regulations I tried to understand and tried to second guess. Uh, you look at these regulations and... It's not just the aerodynamics that yeah, which have been changed in some really clever ways. Loads of other as every aspect of the car, through all the kind of the other mechanical and under the skin bits, have been looked at, and changes have been made. That you think, why haven't they done this in the past? You know, some of this stuff has been kind of so obvious. Uh, some of mm. it hasn't been obvious, and when you find out why they've done it, you think, oh god, yeah, that should <laughs> should have been so obvious. It mm. really is the most well thought out package of regulations I've seen in such a long time. 
Um, and it's great. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I was lucky to interview um, uh, Jason Somerville and Craig Wilson, who were the guys that did, you know, the, the, in, in a small team, but they were the kind of the headline act of, of setting these regulations out and starting to understand them in a bit more detail and why some things were changed and um, uh, and get, getting a background on that. And, you know, it really has been thought through. It's been thought through. It's been tested in wind tunnels. It's been simulated. It's gone out to groups of people. It's gone out to the teams for them to have a good poke at it. Then it's come mm. back and they've reworked it. And it's not just like it has been in the past where someone, God knows who, has written up some changes in the bodywork rules and, you know, literally missed big sections of it out or completely misunderstood how the teams would have interpreted it. So, mm. yeah, so I think I'm whether that makes closer racing next year is a slightly different question. Uh, the aims of the regulations was to start to level up the field, and I think they will do that, but it will take time for all of the teams to be able to react to the regulations in that you know in in the, the time and the resources that they've been able to so there will be a bit of field spread in 2022 which could be seen as you know uh, something slightly negative for these rules and we we're supposed to see more overtaking but you know the field's more spread apart than ever i think when yeah. you do get cars that are able to get close together they will be able to race it's mm. just a case of you know maybe the um, Ferrari isn't able to get close to the Red Bull because they're, you know, three, four tenths a second a lap slower. So I think that will be the difference, but that will come over time. But what will also happen over the same amount of time is these regulations will continue to be worked with that mm. same level of diligence that they were in the first place. So we did have, if you remember, back in 2009, lots of very well, relatively well-worded regulations with wind tunnel programme to get rid of all of the, the complicated area that was happening in 2008. But those yeah. regulations were never followed up on. And that's why they eventually failed. And that led to half the problems that we have now. So yeah, so I, I'm, I'm really um, optimistic for these rules to actually deliver what they uh, were supposed to do, as I say, not just in aero, but in every other aspect of the car's design. Do you think they are too prescriptive? Uh, is there enough room for the teams to kind of work within to make something unique uh, to kind of push the boundaries a little bit? Um, or, or or is it purposely quite prescriptive so we can't have too big a, a gap between the teams? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the areas where the, the regulation has been quite clever. And equally, maybe the communication about it hasn't been quite so clever because mm. we saw those two... Uh, several versions of the uh, potential 2022 car looking all very similar um and that's not quite how the regulations are going to work out so there's some areas which will have a real impact on the wake of the car behind and will have a real impact on that following excuse me on that following car in terms of how well it's able to run in what wake comes off of the leading car so what you don't want to do is give teams lots of freedom in those areas because what they'll do is change the the, the bodywork to create performance rather than trying to clean up the wake or to clean up its sensitivity. Mm. So they've been quite careful there. Now it will be frustrating because these are some big performance areas like the rear wing, like the floor, like the front wing. Um, but there's still performance to be found in, in some of those areas by playing with them. It's just you don't have that big broad brush that you've had you know, in years gone by, but it's been getting more prescriptive in those areas, you know, probably since 2009 in particular. And then they've got some areas of real freedom 
Um, and I, again, I don't think this came across in those renders in the concept cars. So what you're going to have with the, the nose and the shape of the front wing, there's some real quite exciting things teams can do there. And they all have very different philosophies. Then right. you've got things like the, uh, the front suspension, uh, which will be quite different between the cars. I know that for a fact. Um, then you'll have uh, the side pods, these kind of um, jet fighter inlets that you saw on concept cars won't be uh, on the, the team's cars. They won't design a car that looks like that. Um, these weirdly shaped undercut side pods and Coke bottles, they will not look like that. Um, oh, really? You've got some potential cooling louvers in the back of the side pods, a little bit like... I think one of the concept cars showed them, but if you can remember Alonso's 2006 um, Renault that had like completely louvered side pods, you're going to have something a little bit like that. And that's really going to give teams the scope to play with. Do we let the air out of these louvers? Do we let them out of the Coke bottle? Do we do something different? And you're mm. going to see, certainly in the first handful of years of these regulations, teams going in very different directions all around the car with those areas. And I think they're the things that people see. Um, so from a fan's perspective, it would be good that cars will look quite different from each other. And um, from equally from the fans' perspectives, we don't really care what the front wing end plate looks like. Um, <laughs> but that's prescriptive. But that will actually help with the sensitivity and that will help with the overtaking. So, you know, as I say, the, the, the attention's been given to the right places in the right ways. So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what some of these teams have come out with. I mean, I've started to draw these cars over the past few weeks and started to kind of get the geometry of bits and pieces. And mm. um, yeah, there's, there's lots of very different decisions that you need to make. Whereas, especially with you know, this year's cars, everyone, even with some quite big regulations with the diffuser and the rear brake ducts and the floor edge, everyone within you know, probably a couple of races ended up with exactly the same solution which mean they, back in their design office, before they saw anyone else's, they'd all worked out the optimum solution. For 2022, that just won't be the case. Everyone's going to have something really quite different. Sean, you've got something that probably leads off that, actually, a question for, for Scarves. Yeah, very much so. And I'm, I'm, quite, I'm actually just looking at a picture of the, the car that they, they brought with all the drivers uh, mm. placed around it. Um, and the fact that you said that, you know, they won't have those jet engine intakes. I don't know why, but immediately I thought of the 2011 McLaren, the, the 26 with the, the U-shaped uh, <laughs> intakes. I think that would look really cool on the new cars. I'd love to see something like that again. I thought that was a beautiful car. Um, but uh, even actually on that, just on like those design elements, I might be putting you on the spot here a little bit, but if you had to hazard a guess, what team do you think will nail the regulations more than the others like will mercedes continue to dominate or are we going to see like a a bronze style fairy tale and Haas with their alleged whole year of developing <laughs> next year's car are like is mick schumacher is nikita mazafin going to win the opening race is mick schumacher going to be champion next year who do you think will will, will really nail next yeah, year i wish you hadn't asked me that um <laughs> it's, it, it's funny actually because you, you you get these snippets out of the teams and you get uh some journalists trying to compile who will be the biggest winners um from these regulations based on you know what the teams may have sacrificed in this these past year and what they're saying and you know Haas seem to be one of these teams that have you know really given up completely but even back in 2019, they gave up on sorry, 2020. They gave up on 2021 um, in order to be able to focus on that. Um, 
And there is, with any big change in regulations, maybe less so with these ones, but, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, I think there is always scope that someone's just going to kind of really nail the concept. And that could be Mercedes or it could be Haas or anyone in between. Um, I think with these regulations, I think there's probably less scope to find a kind of a silver bullet solution in terms of, you know, that double diffuser, that F-duct type solution that really makes the difference. I think it will just be a combination of good little bits of design that will actually make one car end up being uh, quicker than all the others. Um, I don't think the natural order that we've seen over the past few years is going to shake up too much. You know, theoretically, Mercedes and Red Bull should really get this. Theoretically, McLaren and Ferrari should nail it quite well and get quite close to the lead two teams as well. But I don't see anything obvious really. Um, anyone would obviously drop out of the order. Anyone would obviously, you know, leap up the order. That's not to say that someone couldn't get it completely wrong. Um, you know, that happens with every rule change. Um, it could even just be down to one of the drivers not getting that feel with these new tyres uh, or with the change in suspension or with the change of, you know, uh, how these cars generate lap time. So there's lots of jeopardy in there. It's, it's just impossible to predict, um, which I think makes it all the more exciting when we do kind of get through through to testing um, and to those first few races. I think the thing that worries me is that, say, We'd use the Haas analogy because I think that kind of excites us, doesn't it, to you know, Schumacher <laughs> and Mazepin, you know, leading the pack away for the first 10 races and thinking, where, where is everyone else gone? <laughs> um, you know, let's... That's exactly what happened in 2009, didn't it? The, the last place team did exactly yeah. that. From the last place team exactly. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> let's say there is that, that Haas solution, you know, that Haas duct, that uh, Haas diffuser, you know, whatever, whatever. <laughs> that doesn't sound very good, does it? Um, no. I, I, I think I can see my April Fool's um, tweet coming out already. Um, yeah, I've got to use that one, haven't I? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there, let's say that Haas found, you know, a, a particular design of something, a loophole, a solution that no one else has found. That would give them an advantage in the early races definitely but when you look at the double diffuser back in 2008 how quickly some of the teams were able to adapt their cars the f-duct how quickly sauber got their first iteration of an f-duct just testing on a friday it's like it's incredible rate of development so if there's something there that the other teams really need to have you can guarantee that within three or four races you know maybe even less if we see it during testing it's it's going to get copied and the advantage that anyone has will be eroded really quickly. And it's kind of a bit depressing to have to say that. But I think yeah. that is, you know, where some of these top teams are now and how good these teams are at rapidly developing things. And we saw that during the COVID crisis, making ventilators and, you know, with teams having the minimal development to change the aero for this year's cars. It's not, you know, they're just really good at doing this stuff now. And, mm. um, you know, I think any advantage, I don't think we would necessarily see a season-long um, era of like Braun-like um, um, dominance. And if you remember, you know, Braun were very much a, a spent force by two-thirds of the way through that season. You know, Red Bull mm. really were kind of hammering at them. And, you know, I think they did seal the championship relatively early. But, you know, I think if it had gone gone on any, any longer, it would have um, made it look very different. 
So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a, a bit of maybe a bit of a topsy-turvy season, but it's certainly going to be really interesting to see what those cars look like and how everyone reacts over the opening part of the year. So what you're saying is stick a fiver on Mick Schumacher to be <laughs> champion. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you could probably find some, some betting site that would give you, um, it's either going to be another Hamilton or maybe if it's a Verstappen from this year, uh, or, you know, Mazepin Championship. And if it'd be one of them two, then you get some great yeah. odds. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if that, that would be the safe money would go. <laughs> Right, I'm, I'm going to pull us back to kind of your, your your career, kind of journalism side of things. You, you must have spoken to quite a few people uh, within the paddock or around the around the paddock. Who's been the most interesting to kind of interview? I'm, I'm guessing from a technical uh, point of view, it's going to be one of the technical guys. I don't know whether you kind of deal with the drivers as much or whatever, or uh, have you have have you had epic chats with Adrian Newey or something? Um, probably one of my first. Um... No, it was my, I think it was my second professional interview, if you can use the word professional, in terms right. of where I'd, I'd actually rocked up somewhere as media. Right. Uh, the first the first one with, with Gustav Brunner, the Austrian designer that was designed the first Toyota F1 car. Uh, and as a guy that taught me so lot, so much while I was just interviewing him was amazing. Um, and sadly, you know, he's kind of disappeared without a trace. I'd love to get a kind of get touch base with him again. My second interview was with Newey at wow. the launch of the MP417, which was really interesting because it was my first, I think it was my first foreign launch. It was at Barcelona. Um, Kimi Räikkönen had just joined the, joined the team. David Coulthard was obviously the, the incumbent. And it was, I kind of rocked up with all of the, the British media, the rest of the world's media. And uh, David came out and gave a very professional interview. And obviously all the British press loved asking him questions about how great he is and how great his winter was and how fit he is yeah. and how he's going to really do it this year. Now he's got a twin keel car, which he didn't have last year, which is probably why he didn't win last year. And then Kimmy stepped up. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, how old must he be when he joined McLaren? Probably 20, if not a bit younger. Yeah. Um, most people hadn't even noticed him at, at, um, at Salba. And, you know, the microphones went out to the, the audience and said, has anyone got any questions for Kimmy? And there was like this deathly silence. <laughs> oh, no. And, poor poor um, Kimmy. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, I thought, oh, I'll put my hand up and ask him a question. It's like, yeah, I can't leave the guy hanging. Um, and um, actually, Kim, Kim, Kimmy is one of the, probably the drivers I've spoken to the most in an odd kind of way. Wow. Um, over the years, I did a long in, uh, TV interview with him on, on breaks. And you would imagine that was probably for, for, for Kimmy, we were one of the most horrible things to have to do on a Friday morning of a Grand Prix weekend or whatever day it was. And he was great. We were laughing. He was telling me all about the breaks and about the performance and how his legs aren't bigger than, you know, one isn't bigger than the other one. And it was just like, yeah, yeah, Kimmy can really turn it out. And I think with the drivers, you know, I think, yeah, and, and Kimmy is the classic example. If you ask Kimmy, so how do you think your race went? He's going mm. to give you a Kimmy answer. If you yeah. give him a question or any driver a question, it's like in that second stint, you seem to kind of go off on those mediums or, you know, you had that maneuver or you did this and did that. And when I used to do a lot of the, the media pen interviews, I'd always have lots of notes and lots of questions for each driver. And they mm. really engage with you if you ask them something other than the, oh, so how did your race go? Uh, which is kind of yeah. a standard answer because no one knows what they did. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the drivers can be a lot more fun than perhaps that they sometimes would appear, certainly for a technical journalist. But I've I've been lucky. I've spoken to lots of the technical directors, 
um you know maybe going back a bit lower down in the order of the designers but also lots of just you know the people on the ground that you bump into at events and chat to and as much as we don't get a lot of technical in- people being interviewed on tv they love talking about what they do and you know, for me it's great because then i can then translate that out in the work that i do but um mm-hmm. in terms of the person that i've probably had the most in-depth the most interesting um probably not newy because he's very guarded as you could imagine mm-hmm. um and uh, he, he's he's a very sh- naturally a very shy person, and he really doesn't like if he's kind of chit chatting to you if you're in like you know in the in the motorhome and he's there. You can see that he's feels awkward with it. Right. Um, but for me, I mean, perhaps who's he's, has been my favourite designer. Therefore, he's probably I've really enjoyed speaking to him the most. And uh, my time in Formula One never overlapped with his was John Barnard, who, as you may remember, is you know the McLaren carbon fibre. Uh, chassis designer, the Ferrari semi-automatic designer, you know, Damon Hill's nearly winning Arrow's designer. You know, he's designed all these great cars. And I, mm. I did um, what was supposed to be um, uh, an interview that was going to be a 10-minute piece of TV that was, a, I think it was at well over two hours of recorded interview at his wow. house in Wimbledon. And wow. uh, for, for his book, and if you've read the, the new e-book, which is very good, I have, yes, um, yeah, yeah really. But if, you, if you're even slightly interested in the technical side of things, um, and it's not a book about engineering, it's just a book about how he comes about with solutions. John Barnard's book is, you know, tenfold better than you is. Um, and, oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, that, that, that's my opinion. I know a lot of people may think slightly <laughs> differently, but yeah. Um, I'll have to read and, it. I'll have to read it. And it's, it, it was just chatting to him and, uh, you know, the feedback you get when you get these people who get excited about talking about their work it's it's really good and there's no one better to talk to and it's probably the same with politics is you know someone that now isn't actually in the sport and has got no no secrecy or no axe to grind and can actually tell you things and it's great um just interviewing some of these people but equally you know as someone like james allison um I, i haven't chatted to him so much since he's been at mercedes but his time at renault um and maybe partly so at Ferrari is mm. just a great guy to chat to. Um, you know, both with kind of the official when the microphone's on, but would you chat to him otherwise? Um, as was someone like Sam Michael uh, from Williams, who again got quite a bad rap at his time at Williams and uh, latterly at um, McLaren, but was actually an you know, incredible engineer, designed lots of the bits of the old Jordans, which you know, really went under the radar. Um, but was just another one of these guys that would just be very free with their time and explain stuff. I mean, he explained the fuel tank to me properly for the first time ever, and I've done something quite recently, and I still draw back to that interview, even probably 15 years later. Um, and these, you know, all of these people have been you know, really generous um, with their, you know, their, their time and their efforts with me over these years to kind of bring you bring me up to the, the stage where I feel that I am you know, at least telling the majority of the truth as I understand it rather than throwing out loads of old cliches. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever put your uh, foot in your mouth within, in an interview? I'm putting you on the spot now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, loads of times. Um, you know, it's always when you've just, when someone is quite relaxed, you know, um, I think it might have been Gunther Steiner actually when he was at Jaguar. And when twin keels and how many keels you had in your car and where they were was the biggest talking point. And he just happened to be sat there. I sat next to him, he was chatting. And I mis misrecalled how it was set out last year. And I think you can imagine it wasn't quite a full Netflix moment. Ah, oh, the fucking uh, <laughs> keels heard like this. Um, 
but it was no 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 they weren't and, and it was like oh shit what an idiot um and yeah yeah you often you often come out like that or um if you're trying to get clever with technical words um often you can tie yourself up in knots um and uh, but to be fair no i don't think i've ever had anyone do anything other than try and correct me if i've ever fouled up with a question or a misunderstanding and um i've often even been in the paddock where i've um had my piece go to press and then you'll have someone shout across no it was an oil cooler not a radiator or something like that <laughs> and, like, and yeah you often, <laughs> you often find out things more after the fact that you've kind of put your neck on the line right. um and you know, i think people describe it as shaking the tree you'll put something out someone will then correct you and it's like oh no i know it um yeah but that's that's all part of the fun and um you know, you just learn all of the time from these people and from, you know, people in the wider industry and just sitting there and trying to work it out yourself. And uh, that's what makes it fun for me. And and is is there a person that maybe you would you would have liked to have interviewed for you know even from years ago years before uh, your your own F one career or or maybe even someone that you just haven't got to speak to uh, at all from from the current grid or or whatever that you would like to interview. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's one person that I really, I, I literally cannot interview now is a guy called uh, Dr. Harvey Postlethwaite, who was um, a British designer uh, with um, Hesketh, Wolf, um, just as Wolf became Williams, he moved on, he moved on to Ferrari and made the early 80s Ferraris, he then um, moved uh, to Tyrrell, where he's probably most famous for being at Tyrrell and mm. at the failed Honda thing. And he was just one of those real straightforward engineers um, that just kind of got things done, but in a considered way. And he was someone that worked a lot with Mike Gascoigne when he was a very young designer. And having spoken to lots of people that have worked with him, um, and from reading you know, interviews with him you know, uh, uh, back in the day, mm. uh, sadly, he died of a heart attack at the end of what well, led to the end of Honda's uh, project in the 90s. So, I, you know, I, I, I literally cannot go back um, mm. to see him. I'd love to do an autobiography on him and just speak to all of these people properly on, on microphone and just get that story. Um, That'd be great. But that would be great. There's, you know, there's a few other people. Um, Gordon Murray. Uh, Gordon Murray. I've spoken to Gordon Murray a number of times. Oh, yeah, um, okay. The, uh, I, I've been very lucky in that respect. Um, I was actually I was halfway through an interview with him when he released his massive book on all of his cars, which you ever get a chance to have a glimpse of. I mean, they cost a fortune, but um, well worth <laughs> well worth having a look at. I was just about getting into you know chatting to him, and I was interrupted by someone that wanted to talk to him, and it's like, oh, who is this? It's, 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 it's Nigel Mansell. <laughs> and, and, my, and it's like Nigel looks down and he goes I'm really sorry just, I was passing I just want to say hi and it's like well, what, can, what, what can I say what can you um, say to Nigel and no, actually, his, Nigel's conversation with Gordon was actually quite interesting um, right. and then I got back to it and then I was cut short but uh, yeah it's fine <sighs> um, Colin Chapman obviously Colin yeah um, um, another uh, I, I'm doing a, a project at the moment um around Formula One, which is going to, you, you'll hear about next year um, um, that I'm involved with. And one of the things that we're doing is we, we're speaking to lots of people that are um, from the, the older generation of Formula One. Um, and we're speaking to lots of old drivers, lots of old designers. And it, it's actually made me realize that 
again, as I kind of point I made earlier, is that you know once you're free of actually working in the industry, you can, you can really talk and really explain things. Yeah. And um, we, we, we're trying to get on camera lots of old people and lots of their stories and get them captured now before, sadly, it's too late, because we we lost um, Ricardo Davila, um, who while was maybe only um, you know the designer of the Caprice car and a, a few other um, sort of unimportant Formula One cars, but the also the Nissan GTR LMP1 car, but was had so many great stories of designing cars. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just when you go back and you think we've kind of got this stuff, you've got to get it trapped on camera or on audio or just written down somewhere. So um, yeah, you, you get, you get some great stories from these, uh, these old designers um, and uh, maybe it's slightly more interesting than trying to interview people about current cars because they really you know, uh, yeah. restricted by the PR department and what they can <laughs> tell you. Um, certainly on the record, off the record, if you can get them in the right day, yeah, they, they, they can tell you bits and pieces too. It just popped into my head there. What do you think is the most, the single most important technical innovation for Formula One? Wow. Wow, that's a big one. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, the, the thing really is the invention of the winger. I mean, it's not an invention of the wing. We didn't invent it, but the application of a, a wing and downforce in Formula One probably is the one thing that's massively improved the performance of the cars um you know i think that really has been the one thing that you can point to um maybe second uh, or a, a joint first again if we could have a joint first would be the improvement in safety but probably particularly with the introduction of the, the strength of the current carbon fiber cars the early ones maybe not so much but certainly Carbon fibre has taken us to the point where drivers can have absolutely enormous accidents mm. and and literally walk away from them um, yeah. and be racing, you know, within within a race or two, if not, you know, the same weekend or uh, or what have you. Um, and yeah, I think they're kind of two sides of the same coin. You know, you, you, we want the performance, but equally, you know, we, you know, I I grew up. Um, with Formula One through the 70s and the early 80s. And, you know, sadly, there were deaths on you know, an all-too-frequent basis, not just Formula One, but in other sports as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, we have really got away from that, haven't we? You know, a, a death is shocking. A big accident like, you know, Groschon's last year is, you know, so immensely shocking now that you can't believe that during the 60s and 70s that would happen every couple of races. Yeah. Um, yeah, with with fatal consequences. So I think um, safety, but you know, maybe specifically the carbon fiber uh, safety cell is probably the the other thing that I think is maybe made Formula One acceptable um, in these years. Um, because I don't think Formula One maybe could have continued. It would be you know, almost like bullfighting, wouldn't it? You know, it's just barbaric that we're you know ha- having these incidents. So um, yeah, you you could you could pick either two of those, but they are the ones. Um, that I think really stand out head and shoulders about other things. Let's be done. Yeah, there's been loads of fantastic ideas and little innovations over the years as well. But um, mm. you know, we could we could pick out hundreds of those um, and probably argue all night in which order to put them in. But yeah, <laughs> I think those those two probably sit head and shoulders about above everything else. So, a, kind of a inspired question from what Coops asked you. If you had to pick uh, an era of Formula One, like an era of the cars, I mean, my personal favorite is like the late 90s, those uh, the late 90s or the kind of early 2000s mm-hmm. cars. 
what would be your favorite era of Formula One cars? Ah, that's int- I mean, it's interesting because I think you get a kind of sweet spot of cars and it seems to be almost every 10 years. Um, and I think I may have thought about this in the past, certainly when I go back and think, oh, what can I draw? What old car can I draw that I really like the look of? And they always <laughs> tend to be 10 years <laughs> apart. So, um, I'm now trying to think what the 2010 cars look like and they were pretty horrific. But um, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the early 2000s, yes, you're right. I think they were rather special cars, um, particularly the V10s, which I personally, I don't hold a great uh, affection for the V10 um, in terms of its sound or anything, but I know a lot of people do. But I mm. think they were particularly nice cars in terms of the level of performance they had. Um, for me, one of the real pivotal areas was that kind of, again, a 10 years earlier than early 90s, late 80s cars. So the Tyrrell 019, the Leighton House cars, uh, the Jordan 191, mm. which I think mm. is kind of sort of pivotal. Uh, that's that's a personal favourite for me, being from the yeah, same I, mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of rotate around those three cars in terms of the one that maybe that I love the most, if I could ever. I'm not, I'm not a person that has you know a list of favourite colours and favourite songs and favourite cars, but, <laughs> but those three cars are probably in the, that sort of top list because there's just something about them and there's something about that era where they'd suddenly gone to being quite, um, engineering and scientific led in the design of the cars rather than it being purely, you know, one guy with a big idea on a, a drawing board, which was, which was great, don't get me wrong, but I think we'd actually applied some some rigour to the design of the cars just around that point. But there's an, a really specific period for me where I absolutely loved the cars and um, I, I did mention it very, very briefly earlier on. At the end of 1982, they got rid of the ground effect cars, which by 1982 were some very beautiful very sleek and elegant looking cars the the ferrari the renault um there was a Ligier that looked the, the 19 which looked absolutely incredible with its long blue side pods and you know the very functional looking mclaren but over that winter they banned the ground effect and the side uh, the skirted side pods and enforced a flat bottom and some reshaped wings and over that winter the teams literally having had probably on the drawing board an almost finished 1983 car had to kind of get the pencil out, rub off all the all the bodywork that they'd drawn for it, and redraw a complete set of bodywork for it. Mm. And over that winter, the teams were testing lots of different ideas, and they were literally, you know, making bits of car out of aluminium, going and testing it, and seeing if it worked, and putting high wings, low wings, double wings. And that winter in 1982, as the cars all appeared, and that would be things like the sorry, 83 uh, cars, which was you know the double winged uh, Tolman. Um, with the, the the big scary nose with the radiators in it. You had the McLaren with the Coke bottle shape for the first time. You had mm. the Ferrari that had this kind of short brutalist design, the, the Brabham BT52 shaped like a dart. The Renault that had these massive side pods, which at the time I thought was a complete no-no, but actually turned out was a, a brilliant idea and um, showed how much I know about aerodynamics back in those days. <laughs> it was literally that that brief moment, that snapshot, something about those cars just really captured my imagination. And that was literally the point where I had kind of switched from being, oh, there's a Grand Prix on, I'll watch that. And oh, oh, if I see a Grand Prix magazine or a Grand Prix model, I'll pick it up to actually, no, I'm going to make a point of picking up the magazine every month and making sure I've got all of the models that have been made that are Formula One cars. And, you know, I start to draw, I was at, um, where was I at that stage, 83? I was still at high school. Um, and you know, all my books were just covered in, you know, 
concepts where I could put wings and shape things and do stuff like that. And that is, it's just odd that that's just the one that kind of caught my, my imagination. It may not be in everyone else's opinion. It certainly wasn't a, be- a beautiful era or a Formula One or a classic era, but it just something about it just it grabbed my, my imagination. And then experimental. It was it was it was the experimental. They were literally running new letter cars um, during testing, and even through the opening races. And it's just something that kind of did it for me. But equally, you know, I, as I say, I've made all the Tamiya's. I'm making the Tyrrell six wheeler in the the big scale model at the moment. So I've just finished making the wow. gearbox and the the DFE, and we're about to start on the chassis. Um, you know, so going back, there was you know the Brabham fan car, and you know all these kind of cars that clearly caught my interest back in the day lotus 78 79 i mean the 80 was a beautiful looking car as well so you know i think every era has something um but i think equally everyone depending on their age has got you know uh, uh, maybe a, a few years where the cars just look great i mean there's been a few years when the cars have looked awful um <sighs> and uh, been quite hard to um to justify um, you know, two thousand. Kind of late two thousands, wasn't it? That they looked awful in the late two thousands. Some of them. Late two thousands, yeah. When they just gone overboard with it, put bodywork almost anywhere. Winglets everywhere. Two thousand fourteen stands out in my mind, where they all yeah. had the. Um, oh yeah, no. Twenty fourteen. I, I, I'm, I, I, I don't know if it's a boast or if it's something I should be um, sad about. I, I predicted. I predicted the. the what I call the finger nose is the polite thing <laughs> I use. Because I, I noticed when I was doing like, YouTube clips or what have you at the time that I would hold my hand up to explain the shape of the nose and you are quite literally giving someone the finger. And it's like, whoa, that's, <laughs> that's, that's I, can't, I, I can't be doing that. Thank God they, they changed it. I predicted mm. that um, by reading the regulations and did a drawing for Autosport. And it was one of those things that you know, back then we described, it went viral. Mm. Um and everyone said, no, 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 they'll never do that. It's like, yes, they bloody will. And, <laughs> and apparently Autosport were being approached by all sorts of teams saying, well, where did he get that information from? <laughs> why, why, why is he drawing our, our car for next year? And it's like, oh, shit, I've already nailed the, nailed the, uh, the nail on the head here, haven't I? Um, yeah, that was, that was something that really should have been written out the regulations. And again, goes back to my point earlier that, uh, you know, some of this stuff was obvious. We had, the, we had the weird noses the years before, didn't we? That kind of weird step nose. And again, it was all very predictable. Um, and I think the current cars with the length, the complicated barge boards, the front wings we had till 2017, you know, I think they're all particularly ugly things. As much as I love the technology, I, you know, I don't always love the aesthetics of it. Well, let's hope the next year's cars, uh, like you say, look 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 nice. I, I think that's important. It, it looks is important, I think, uh, in in a sport. I mean, I think it is. We had the, those the changes where the, the rear wing got led uh, lent back, and we had that sort of now this V shaped front wing and some other bits and pieces. So I I think they appreciate that a bit of change in shape is important. And again, as we said with these new regulations, there's some areas that are quite visual which don't add a lot of performance, but actually make the cars look quite different to each other, which makes next year's cars quite exciting. You know, they're still way too long. They are a bit bit shorter, at least for some of the teams next year. And um, as I say, they'll keep working on those rules. So they're now working on the 2026 rules, which should be, again, another big leap forwards in making these cars lighter and shorter and even better to race. So, you know, at the moment, I think Formula 1 could be on a bit of a roll. It's quite exciting. It's quite, yeah, it is, it is. So I'm excited. I'm always excited, let's be honest. 
Um, right, I'm going to bring you on to uh, the questions that we kind of ask everyone um, because okay. it, it would be rude not to. Um, <laughs> you have you, you're, you've got a group of uh, British supporters um, that have only ever been to Silverstone. Um, which flyaway circuit and race, including kind of the whole weekend and the city that it's based in or next to, or you know, the, the, as a holiday destination, which which circuit? Or race weekend? Would you advise people to to go to? <laughs> I like that question. Um, <laughs> now this 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 is a, a, a there's a psychological word for this. Is actually is one of those questions that actually you give away your opinion of the the, the people that go to um, the the British Grand Prix as British people. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I mean, it's inter- it's interesting seeing the races where you do get a lot of British people, which you know, Monaco is one of the classics. Um, mm. um, and thinking out loud, it probably is races that are, have a very strong city centre affiliation. So if I was right. to recommend uh, a British Grand, you know, uh, you know, with with a, the, the flag and all of the Hamilton sort of gear to go to a race, it probably <laughs> would it probably would be somewhere like uh, Melbourne. Um, yeah, Montre- Montreal um, or Austin, which are kind of like the big party um, Grand Prix because they're so close to the city centre. And mm. not to say that some of the other city centres aren't vibrant and exciting, but I think there is that kind of um, I don't know what the word would be, kind of uh, night out culture. Um, you know, pub culture right. maybe you could might be a better word um, that they would really enjoy. Um, that would be different, say, for example, going to Suzuka, which I probably wouldn't recommend for, um, you know, um, a British Grand Prix fan. So, yeah, okay. they'll, they'll, probably be the, they'll probably be the key ones, definitely. Um, I, I've not been to Mexico, but I'm led to believe that that one's very close to that group as well. So if you're into tequila, then maybe that would be the one you would go to. It makes me happy. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it was set up. I had to knock it out of the park. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I, and I, oh, God, sorry, I, sorry. I'd, I'd certainly second Montreal. I used to live there, and the whole city just shuts down for the Grand Prix. That'll it's their biggest event yeah. of the year. It is absolutely be. unbelievable. Uh, I've sadly I've only been there once um, with some Canadians. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to say, if Ernie's ever listening, uh, hi out there. Um, <laughs> no, it, I mean, it really is. It, it's, it's a great experience, and you have, you have fun at the circuit and you have fun in the city. And I think that is great for most people. And it's very easy to get to from this neck of the woods, believe it or not. Yes. Yeah, indeed it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, and are you flying out to any races this year? Have you been out? Obviously COVID. COVID no, kind I've of not. I, COVID has kind of really um, hit me in two ways. One, because it's, it's difficult to travel. And mm. secondly, I can't get in the pit lane. So uh. Uh, <laughs> why would I go? Um, yeah. you know, I'm literally I'm in a better position at home to see everything than I am at the circuit, which is very perverse and should make you wonder why other media go so much to every race. It's like, mm. well, you know, why are you there? But uh, no, um, for me, it will be testing. Um, will right. be my my first pandemic um, uh, trip out. And are you hoping to go out, go to a few of the races as well next year? Uh, yeah, uh, um, again, um, I, I do work with with Formula One uh, now, so we're we're currently discussing what we're going to be doing for the races next year because you have this rather vague show and tell thing on a Thursday um, 
which, as I understand it, and I won't say too much, it's not literally show and sell as it's been explained uh, by the bulk of the media, but it will be an opportunity for people to see more of the cars and have the cars explained by people like myself, Sam Collins, Albert Fobergar, and um, you know, hopefully people from the teams as well. So there, there should be a, a whole heap more technical content going out there to the fans around the world next year, which you know I think has been long overdue. Um, from my very biased opinion. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you uh, one more the, the one more question that we do ask for every every single one. If you had five pounds, five English pounds, and a bookmaker in front of you right now, uh, and you had to put a five pound bet on the winner of the championship, who would you choose? Would it be Max Verstappen or Lewis Hamilton? Um, I would probably cop out and say I'd go for the one that had the best odds. <laughs> um, because I'm thinking well I'm going to make some money I might as well make the most I possibly can because um, I think it's that close um, mm. today um, which is different to what I said I think some someone a couple of weeks ago I would put my money on Lewis Hamilton um, yep. if you ask me after the Saudi weekend I may review that opinion um, <laughs> and it's simply based on the performance of the cars at the moment and what I believe the upcoming tracks are offering um, and in no way a kind of a fanboy thing. But, yeah, I think it would be Lewis at the moment. Um, a week ago, I'd have probably lost that fiver and put it on, on Max. Um, so, yeah, that's um, that's where I am today. And have you got any kind of anecdote you, that you think our fans could and would in, would enjoy uh, as, as a final <laughs> a final hurrah for your, for your podcast today? <laughs> a final hurrah. <laughs> A final anecdote. Okay, that's an interesting one. <laughs> Has anything um, funny happened to you or anything really interesting happened to you uh, during your time that you just want to share? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the... I mean, it's probably a non-technical anecdote, um, unusually, um, but probably <laughs> that's probably why it comes out as funny. Uh, I used to do the media pen interviews for, of all people, Chinese TV, who I used to do a lot of work with. And, okay. uh, you know, I would interview all of the drivers as they come into the media pen and ask them, sort of questions and um, as um, I may have mentioned earlier, I always try to have some questions prepared that are a bit more interesting and challenging um, and maybe also stroking the driver's ego a little bit as well. And there was a British Grand Prix and I'm guessing that must have been 2016. Uh, Massa was with Williams and qualified really well and I think he led the, the opening laps. If anyone can remember the year, please correct me. Um, and just made a blinding start. And Massa came around, and I think he eventually finished, if not on the podium, just off the podium, but it was all down to that kind of qualifying position and that great start. So I mm. kind of opened my sort of gambit with going, well, that was an incredible start. You know, you really kind of nailed it off the line. That must have really helped you have a great start to the race that you know, got you that podium, if it was a podium. Um, and I was completely uh, thrown back where Massa goes, well, you've obviously never looked at my any of my races I always make great starts. Great making good starts is something that I do at every race. I don't think that, <laughs> I don't think that start was anything anything better than any other one that I'd ever done. And oh, no. <laughs> um, I'm holding my microphone thinking, have I just been told off by Felipe Massa by complimenting him? What the, <laughs> what the, what the hell goes? Which probably is why I, I'm, I'm a technical journalist and um, not... <laughs> someone that does the, the media pen interviews all the time because actually thinking about it now the other one was um on max verstappen's first victory if i can have a double 
anecdote. Yeah, no, go for it. It's the same anecdote told in two separate ways, really. Um, <laughs> Max had won the race, and again, I was doing um, the media pen interviews. Um, can't remember who it was for at that point, but everyone had come past. Um, I could see Daniel, who was his teammate, sort of bubbling up. So again, mm. my kind of opening, opening gambit, knowing that Danny is a really, you know, happy go lucky guy and you know team member so it's like yeah daniel great result for the team today you must be really pumped that the team have got because obviously they had a bit of a drought of victories anyway mm. um great result for the team before i was about to go on and ask him about his race which i think was quite a good race as well and again daniel rather than being his big smiley face just went into a full rant not me but at yeah, 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 I think he, he kind of did say, well, yeah, it was a great result for the team, but I should have got that win at Monaco. I think it was at the race before or the race after, or something around the, the previous races, and mm. just went off at how angry he was that it wasn't him that got the first victory in. And <laughs> that surprised me. And actually, that's it, it's probably improved my opinion of Daniel because I always thought, you know, someone that's always so go lucky and happy in front of the cameras. Yeah. Makes a serious race driver there's always that you know yeah, the good guys don't win and actually mm. seeing that harder side to daniel was actually quite interesting and it's like no he's not the person that I, maybe i you know mistook him for he's not that fool that he plays sometimes and you just mm. saw you know that commitment that he has and um we, we went on to talk about aspects of his grand prix weekend which really was uh far less interesting and probably <laughs> out as well but yeah no, i mean it, it, it's interesting when you just see people react in a totally different way. Um, yeah. When when you know you're you're um you're trying to be well-meaning in your in your intros. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine when you least expect it, when you're actually saying something nice about them. <laughs> okay, well, I I I, th- I think we've pretty much. Uh... We've worn out all of our questions. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Um, well, thank you it's very been much. Great coming on. Thank you. Thank you all of you, uh, Cooper and Sean. Definitely. No. We'd we'd love to have you again in the future if you if you'd come on. Uh, give us your insight into hopefully well next next year's coming soon. You know, it's uh, yeah. maybe you can give give us your answers to all those questions that that were kind <laughs> of hang, hanging over the season. Yeah. No. Definitely. If you want to have a chat with me during the launch season or the uh, um, as testing starts, um, just give me a shout. I'm around. Uh, it'd be fun. Brilliant. Did you want to promote your own uh, any avenues that uh, fans can go and go and see you online? Yeah, I mean you could just you can just put up the Twitter as at Scarbstech, and that, that that's cool. Excellent. So yeah, go and go and head to at Scarbstech on Twitter and find out mm-hmm. all about Scarbs uh, on the internet. Well, thanks very much then, Scarbs, uh, and we'll we'll see you again soon. So that's been everything from the Everything F1 team. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening today. Thanks very much to my co-hosts, Coops. Thank you, Coops. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much to Sean. Thank you, Sean. Thank you very much. We will see you all next week. And don't forget, you can find us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We are also on the website www.everythingf1.com and of course you can hit that subscribe button on your podcast streaming service and get all of the latest podcasts in your earlobes as soon as they drop. We will be having another guest next week, Tom Gaymore. Uh, So come and listen to him next week uh, and he'll give us his opinions uh, and thoughts on the upcoming Grand Prix, which will be in Saudi Arabia. So all that's left for him to say is thank you very much for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.